listening to the Dreaming of Freedom podcast on the Two Cents FC Network. All right, welcome back to the Dreaming of Freedom podcast, where we talk about all things black soccer and MLS. I'm Jermaine, and I'm one of the leaders of Black Herons United, an independent black supporters group for Inter-Miami and all things black soccer in South Florida. For episode 17, we have a special Juneteenth episode as we are joined by friends of the pod and coaching extraordinaires, Stacey Wilson and Chris Nurse. Uh, so if y'all haven't already, go ahead and check out episodes 7 and 12 as we chop it up with Chris and Stacey uh, respectively. Uh, Stacey, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you today, Jermaine? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Chris, Chris, uh, just coming off a tournament. How's everything with you? How was the tournament? I'm doing good, thanks. Uh, relaxing a little bit now that the youth season has come to a close, but shortly start preparing for next year. So enjoying a few days break. Yeah, the work never stops. The work never stops. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, well again, uh, thank you both for joining me. Um, so let's just get right into it, right? So uh, obviously, Juneteenth was earlier this week. So we're, we're uh, counting this as our Juneteenth episode. Um, and as a matter of fact, this actually marks the one year anniversary of the Dreaming of Freedom podcast. So we are very grateful uh, that the both of y'all have uh, been a part of our short, but uh, also seemingly long journey. Uh, so for this episode, as we celebrate and remember the triumphs and struggles of African-Americans, and I would add people of the African diaspora, we wanted to focus on how race uh, has shaped your professional careers, both as players and coaches. But... Uh, let's start off the pitch. Okay, so Juneteenth, the holiday that celebrates the day the last, uh, sorry, celebrates the day the last of the enslaved African Americans learned of their freedom, um, officially became a federal holiday, a national holiday in 2021. But of course, African Americans have been celebrating this particular holiday for decades. Um, so let's start with Stacy. Uh, Stacy, do you remember when you actually learned about Juneteenth, uh, and 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 in general, how present? I guess was African American history or Black history in general in your household. I would I would say I don't actually remember learning about it. I know I went to a pretty good high school and we were always talking about um, a variety of issues and, and definitely you know high schoolers debate civil war and uh, uh, that type of thing. Um, Confederate flag. Those are kind of those those hot issues. Um, but yeah, I don't really remember learning exactly about it. I do remember pop culture-wise being surprised um, to see something on it on television. Um, I think it was intertwined into the the show Blackish. I think that was like 2017. They did an episode on it, and so I was pretty okay. surprised back then to see that. But um, but I don't remember when I exactly learned about it. Yeah, I know for me, I was trying to think about it for, for my own personal experience. And I think I may have heard something about it in high school, but going to an HBCU, uh, Florida A&M University, that's when, that was the first time I heard about it when I was in college. Um, but, but Chris, I know, I know for you, you were born and raised in, in uh, London, England. Um, and so obviously Juneteenth, uh, I'm sure it wasn't a holiday the UK celebrated, right? So uh, before we even get to your move to the States, uh, growing up in England, in London, of Guyanese descent, um, was race kind of like a present reality in your childhood? Was was Black history um, a present um, kind of uh, feature growing up? Yeah, um, for myself, racism was 
definitely a, a part of society growing up. Um, I have two Caribbean parents. My dad is Guyanese, my mum was Jamaican. And my household was very Caribbean, but my dad made it very clear that when we stepped outside the front doors, that we were governed by a different set of rules and we had to understand how to navigate those circumstances uh, when we when we, when we we left the house. But yeah, it was definitely prevalent. Um, we lived in the suburbs of London where my parents moved so we could kind of go to better schools, have a little bit of better education. So we were not necessarily surrounded by um, a lot of people of color in our school, which made challenges a lot hard because you were not supported by educators or adults or leaders who necessarily understood your challenge and there was a lot of ignorance from kids that picked up habits from their parents um in all honesty that that would kind of poke fun at you in terms of looking for a response just to have fun um so yeah it was it was challenging but i guess it was all part of a, a journey that led to something good in the end sure and so and so can you can you kind of take us back to uh, London, growing up in a Guyanese Jamaican household? Uh, what were some of the lessons that your parents uh, taught you? Aside from you know when you step outside the house, you're governed by a, you know a different set of rules. What was what were some of the cultural kind of lessons that you, you know that you learned growing up? Well, both my parents were working. My dad was an electrician, and my mum was a midwife, so they both worked pretty long hours. So in in school, I would get into a lot of trouble because kids would be racist, and I would react, and it. You know, it got me into into a lot of problems because it's just your word against theirs, right? And at the end of the day, when the teacher comes along, they say, "I didn't say that," but you know, you did, and you're angry and you're upset and you retaliated. And the only the only thing that gets seen is the retaliation. No one sees the, the initial response. So it was something that you kind of learn to navigate with on a, on a on a daily basis. And it wasn't maybe till I got a little bit more older, a little bit more understanding of emotions and how to react to certain situations that I really got control of it. But as a youngster, it was probably causing me a lot more hassle than it was the people who were actually being racist sure sure uh and 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 stacy i know you elaborated a little bit too about you know discussions around the confederate flags right uh you were growing up in virginia can you talk about some of the um you know or or were there any kind of racial you know racially uh were there any racial tensions right at your high school or just growing up in you know in virginia in general well, um, I feel like there's probably a little bit more tension if there's um, more of a mixture. There was such a minority, uh, such a low percentage of black students uh, that there's not really a tension. It's just a couple of us are, you know, uh, more uncomfortable. So um, uh, I'd say the issues as you became a little bit older you know like uh in high school where it was a little bit advanced there was uh th there could be at times tension because i think you actually asked me about it um within the interview that we did before because you recalled uh even what i'd almost forgot that i was a part of a very uh you know a very good um black student movement in high school so even That's though right. we were in high school and, you know, I was thinking, geez, you know, cause, uh, how did we get through like uh, Rodney King and the, these kind of huge type of issues? And it actually was, that was, uh, you know, somewhere where we had uh, uh, a really good, I guess you could say outlet. So, you know, intellectual, emotional, all that. So, so yeah. Awesome. Awesome. 
Um, okay, so uh, this next question is uh, for the both of you. Uh, but Chris, let's start with you first, um, and then we can hear from Stacy. Uh, so, you know, obviously we see every week, almost every week, uh, particularly coming out of Europe, um, particularly coming out of you know places like Spain with you know Vinny Jr. We're always hearing about you know different incidents of racism in the game. Um, if you all are comfortable sharing, have you all ever experienced racism during your playing careers? Or if not, have you ever had kind of one of those moments where it just it just made you think like, damn, was that was that racial? You know, was that coach, you know, trying to make a, you know, trying to make a racial comment towards me? Or was that ref, you know, did they, you know, treat me wrong? Was there anything that kind of um, made you think whether or not you were being uh, subject to some type of racial treatment? Yeah, I think that every racist situation, I still have the like the visual images and the sound like and etched in my brain, you know, and it, most of them were whispers, to be fair. Like there was players who knew that they could whisper certain words in your ear. And, and at the end of the day, what could you do? You're going to say to the referee, oh, he said this. Like, so you, you're literally clenching your fist, biting your teeth to react, but you know what the reaction is going to bring for you. And the opponent at the same time knows exactly what's going on at the same time. Like their objective is for you to react and you to get a red card. So it wasn't growing up, it wasn't the opportunities that you have now where you know, you can leave the field or you have support or anybody even wants to hear what you may be saying. That wasn't wasn't the case at all. But 2016, I think there was a probably the biggest one in, in here in North America towards the end of my playing career where a player on the field who had recently come to the North American League from overseas, like used a lot, a lot of derogatory slurs. I don't know if you want me to repeat them. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's a, a lot of derogatory slurs and during the course of the game, like I literally said, I had teammates on the other team. I said, hey, one of your teammates is saying things about my mom, saying things about my sister, saying things about derogatory language towards black people. I said, I notified the referee, but the referee didn't speak Spanish. So after the game, you know, I was expecting my organization to get behind me, follow up with the league, support me. And of course, those mechanisms were not yet in place. So it became me against the league because I went on Twitter. And, you know, when when you take some of these issues publicly, you end up being, the victim ends up being the one who essentially did something wrong in the end. So it became a, a, a probably a pretty serious thing on uh, through the league. It was a North American soccer league at the time. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to all the black managers that I knew in the league at the time. So I reached out to Brian Haynes, who had been coaching Atlanta. I reached out to Ricky Hill, who had been coaching Tampa Bay Rowdies. And I, and I was pretty much asking him for advice and their support because they had walked in these shoes before. And one of them said to me pretty straight, he said, um, unless your ownership group supports you, because at the time Carmelo Anthony was the owner, so he was one of the only black sports owners, period. He said, unless he supports you and protects you, you're pretty much going to be done because the ones who agree with you are not going to want to come out publicly and support you. And the ones who don't are not going to support you anyway. So he's like, unless your owner takes a strong stance and, and literally protects you, you're, you're going to be done. And that was pretty much what transpired in the, in the, in the next couple of months and years. And that was um, me at 32, probably at 20, at 22, similar situations happened. But when you're a youngster, you probably react a little differently than you do when you're 32. Because now you have a little bit more experience, a little bit more um, knowledge, and you're willing to challenge things a little bit more than when you are 20, when you're just looking for an opportunity to play in the league. And you know that a young age challenging something like that probably would mean that you would never get the opportunity again. At 32, I, I kind of took a stand and and it was what it was. 
you know, I think it's just incredible that, you know, hearing those stories and I'm sure, and obviously you're right. You're not the only black player to have this story. It's just amazing that black players have to go through this thought process, like while they're playing the game, right? They're just playing the game. And now we have this extra uh, distraction um, to kind of obviously to throw you off your game, but it's actually, it's actually dehumanizing, right? It's not just, it's not just banter, right? It's, it's like straight up racism. And so the, the, the thought process to say, okay, I actually cannot respond because I'm a young player. I know this might jeopardize my career, right? For speaking out against racism, for speaking out against something that's wrong. Um, and then, you know, until you're 32, right? Where you feel a little bit more mature, you feel a little bit, you feel a little bit more secure in your position. And then you have that power to do that. Um, it's just, it's, it's just a shame that so many other players are probably going through that same experience. And, and the craziest thing was that Carmelo Anthony is, is almost an activist for, for these type of issues. That's right. And the organization hid it away from him. They didn't raise it with him. It wasn't brought to his attention until the fans were, were kind of berating him on Twitter for not responding or not taking a stance. And eventually after three weeks, I guess somebody opened their Twitter and saw all these messages and saw newspaper articles from Spain. And then only at that stage is when he came in and dig deeper into it. And then the league started to dig deeper into the investigation. Because up until that point, it was the same old brush it under the wow. table. You know, we're not going to take this any further. Wow, that's that's incredible. Um, in, 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 incredibly sad. Uh, but just uh, the, the that's the whole story, right? The the involvement of social media, the involvement of these big celebrities, right? Um, that's a that's an amazing story, but also quite sad at the same time. Um, but you no, know, thank you for the uh, for sharing that, Chris. Um, uh, Stacy, what about you? Have you had have you had any uh, experiences growing up, either um, you know on the school level, uh, the collegiate level, or of course uh, the professional and national team levels, um, that made you question whether or not this was a racially uh, <laughs> a, a racially tinged um, uh, event? I would say um, racially tinged event. I mean, I guess in terms of the type of experience that Chris had was uh, um, you know pretty pretty overt uh, you know in my experience in women's soccer uh, was that wasn't that didn't go on as much at the time uh, you know it wasn't you know, again perhaps the audience of the sport was a lot smaller um, you know there was it was a little bit it could be a little bit more rowdy certain you know locations I remember maybe not being comfortable um, when we went to South Carolina and played Clemson, some of the things being yelled there, but that really was few and far between. And um, so, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, bet between players, the type of incident that, that happened with Chris between players, uh, again, there were so few of us. And in some ways back then, I feel like maybe, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a, uh, yeah, I don't know. There was an intimidation where they really didn't want to go there. Um, and players, you know, um, yeah. as as well. Maybe you know, maybe there's a maybe not intimidation, but just a maturity within the league. You know, our league was fighting to survive, so maybe players and you know, trying to put the best foot forward because we were always concerned as a league, uh, female players about the image we put out. So I think maybe it just was, uh, you know, again, maybe it just understood or, or that that wouldn't be tolerated or, or you know, couldn't be tolerated. But Chris, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've been following what's been going on with Vinny Jr. Uh, 
can you talk about you know what you feel about those you know about, you know about that case and uh, and really the response to Vinny Jr. I think that's what's most alarming to me is the response to Vinny Jr. Particularly from La Liga. Yeah, I think that the main part is that you can be the best at your craft, best at your trade in the world, and people are still going to hate you for how you look, and that that that's incredible. You know, I, uh, I think the situation is bringing it to light because he's not a terrible guy. He's it's not like he's a nasty player. He does anything in a malicious manner to anybody. You know, he just plays the game as free as he can and dances when he scores. You know, how could people find offense to that and want to racially abuse somebody and try to bring him down to the levels that they're trying to bring him just because he's good at what he does mm-hmm. you know you can have you can be a fan you can be hostile but why does it need to go to race and then the organizations and institutions have nothing in place to protect or take retrospective action when these things happen or in, in some passion in some instances you, you ask the question do they even want to take action um, it's become part of the culture and you know you're just supposed to accept it and get on with it and because players earn x amounts of money it's not supposed to impact them or that it's not supposed to matter towards them but we forget that at the end of the day they're still human beings they still have families they still have friends they still have emotions and some of these things that, that happen not right from any aspect yeah of course of course you know and it's and what's I think what I find the most annoying when whenever these incidents happen, particularly in other countries throughout Europe, is are the the excuses? Oh well, this is just part of the this is just part of the soccer culture. This is just part of the football culture. You know, we're just you know we're just you know bantering. This is locker room talk, right? It's like like no, there's <laughs> there's a fine line, right? There's a clear distinction between you know locker room talk and of course racism, right? And so I'll, it 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 made me wonder whether or not. Aside from kind of the, like the racial incidents you um, experienced or, or you didn't experience on the field, were there any discussions within, within the locker rooms with like amongst your teammates um, around race, around racial equality, around any type of racist incidents that were happening kind of on the national scale, right? I know I know Stacy mentioned uh, Rodney King, right? You know, in the you know, in the early '90s. So were any of these discussions had uh, within the locker room, uh, uh, Chris and then and then Stacy? No, not really. I think that, you know, whether it is intentional racism or unintentional racism, I think there was racism that's disguised as banter. And you, you can never really determine somebody's true intentions when they engage in some of these jokes. So, um, you know, there was there was those types of situations that occurred. And, you know, again, it was kind of it was kind of cultural of the sport. And uh, it was very easy to get labeled as having a chip on your shoulder or you can't take a joke or you're sensitive. Mm. And when these kind of words were associated with black players, it made it very difficult for them to get hired elsewhere because this was the reputation that, that, that followed you. So you had to kind of, you didn't have to, but it was kind of part of the sport, the history of the sport, that banter was was acceptable. And now it's becoming, now it, the banter has become different. You know, you don't need to make jokes about somebody's skin color or their race or their ethnicity or where they're from to have a laugh and a joke. You can have banter in different ways about bringing somebody, trying to trying to bring somebody down or make them seem inferior or lesser mm-hmm. as such. Yeah, absolutely. Stacey, um, what about your, uh, what about your experiences um, in the locker room? Yeah, I would say it was not really something that came up. Um, you know, if, if something like that did come up, it might be, I'd say, more with coaches that I connected with. 
and because we might be having a discussion, a deep discussion um, at a restaurant or, you know, in a, in a van, a team van, you know, going from the airport to the, so, you know, in those situations. But other than that, you know, that, and that's, you know, so it takes a coach that's gonna, you know, kind of allow that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure some coaches don't want those discussions at all. I was fortunate to have a couple that that did. So, but but other than that, no, it wasn't some really something that, um, you know, I let frustrations of current events go with me into the locker room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think or one... anyone else's um, recognition of what was going on affected me. So. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's super important, and you know, one thing that I've been thinking about in terms of locker room, you know, talk or, you know, banter is, is this difference between intent and then impact, right? And, you know, one's intent could just be to be joking around or, you know, just be, uh, you know, whatever, pulling your leg or whatever. And it's like, well, there's, there's intent, right? I understand your intent, but then there's also impact, right? And the impact was, was very racist, right? I didn't feel good about that. Right. And so, um, you know, I think there needs to be more education within the locker rooms amongst teams, like, you know, like structural education about these issues um, that I think will help, will, you know, will help minimize these these uh, examples. But, uh, Chris, one thing you said, it kind of reminded me of what Stacy said uh, in our interview back in, uh, I think it was episode 12. Um, you said that, you know, some players get labeled with, you know, as you know, having a chip on your shoulder, as being you know, sensitive to, you know, to these things. And, and that kind of follows you. Um, you know, th- you know, throughout different teams, and I remember Stacy talking about something similar in terms of the national team and how certain players um, are labeled, you know, um, are labeled as not having the best chemistry, right, with, with you know, with the other teammates. Um, can you all talk about, you know, can the both of you talk about the, the kind of subtle ways race, you know, finds its way uh, into into soccer, right? Not not the overt ways, right, like the monkey chance, right, but the more subtle ways. I think it boils down to a lot of, of leadership. I think that good leaders are able to unite everybody and make people understand who, who different people are and extend their, their cultures and their differences. And I think that's one of the, the most important things that can happen in locker rooms is having that person at the forefront who's able to unify everybody and bring everybody together and get the best out of each other as people, as well as impacting each other and doing the best on the pitch. Because as we spoke about, banter, Banner can sometimes be described be a disguise of somebody's true intentions, and you know sometimes we do do assessments on people's character to see if they're if they're suitable fits to be in a team. Mm-hmm. But you also have to make sure that people are suitable to interact with people of different ethnicities, different races, different um, beliefs, because the ones that are normally on the receiving end of banter are normally the minority. Um, I look at the locker rooms that I've been in, and they're, they're normally heavily unbalanced where the black guys are the minority or you may not you may be one or two black guys in the team so you don't necessarily have numbers to defend against some of these jokes so it's a majority now making uh fun of the of you being different in the team because you look different because your culture is a little bit different because you may um do certain certain things a little bit different to the rest of the group and i think that's also a power or an imbalance in the locker rooms that needs to be make sure it's addressed from the leadership and when the leadership's eyes are open because if the head coach makes a, a racial joke or you know a discriminatory joke the rest of the team normally follows suit 
if the head coach hears something and they normally stamp it up quick or they don't lead in that type of way or they don't engage in that type of banter, it normally doesn't last in the locker room very long if, if it ever arrives at all. But when it, it, it's a trait of the head coach, it then normally becomes a similar trait of the captain that they choose, which then means that it becomes a, a, norm, a normalcy in the locker room. Yeah, I think, um, you know, leadership is such an important, <laughs> it's such an important part of the whole equation, right? Uh, it's something we don't often hear about in these discussions about race and, and, and racism is is the role of the leaders, right? Like, who are the captains? Who are the people, you know, telling the team, like, listen, this is unacceptable for the team, right? Like, oftentimes, when we see Vinny Jr., right, like, complaining to the ref, oftentimes we see Real Madrid players like telling Vinny to calm like hey bro you know calm down like his own teammates doing that right so so where is the leadership in those situations right um I think it's such an important you know such an important piece uh Stacy what about you can you talk about some of the more subtle ways in which uh race kind of finds its way into the game uh well you know if you think of uh someone labeling being labeled as having a chip on their shoulder you know Perhaps that's thought of only in, in pro after someone's, um, you know, to some degree made it. Um, but I've seen it where in different scouting, you know, youth scouting, whether it's, you know, national training centers or a version of ODP, um, where, you know, where I've seen it come in there, the way that the players have, are, like you said, once you're given that label, then other coaches kind of, kind of, uh, can jump onto that and it can more negatively affect, uh, the black players. That's, that's really where I've seen it the, the most personally, um, you know, when, uh, in, in, in my career, um, I would say, uh, with, with referees, the way that referees maybe, uh, spoke to the, the way they, I would be curious to see the, the percentage I know they have statistics on percentage of yellow cards that male teams get versus female teams. I would be curious if they had the stats on that for HBCUs or players of color. They were able to do that, um, but I feel like a lot of black players would anecdotally tell you, and you know, even some of their honest teammates that you know, yeah, you have a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, other things are just, you know, maybe culturally to the degree where you are at, at times separated from your family. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, the, the things are, are just more subtle um, systemic. So, you know, but as the numbers are growing, you know, and awareness is growing, uh, some things I, I do feel that players are finding... Um, finding, what would you say, consolation and, and or it's kind of like sometimes when you're going through something but you're going through it alone, you know, like it's it's a little bit more difficult. I do think that the players now are able to see issues earlier and deal with those earlier um, than, than uh, was the case back then. So, and that's just because there are more, you know, more players and you know, of course everyone is trying to make it better for those uh, behind them. So I, I, I do think it is a little bit better, but there's still, you know, I do think um, for me, I'm, you know, kind of fascinated by the, the inability to get fan racism under control, you know, for so many years. 
you know so but but yeah yeah no i definitely have thoughts uh on the fan racism piece um you know i mean i mean do you all have any idea i mean i guess how do you all feel about the the punishment i guess the the process right the 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 punitive process going you know uh, that exists in fifa right now where you know the referee stops the game the first time makes an announcement then stops it a second time then a third time then the then the game is abandoned do you all think that's effective i mean what do you all think what are your thoughts about that uh stacy and then and then chris I would be more curious of both of your opinions. I, I haven't, you know, I don't have a strong opinion on it. Chris? I think that it's good because, uh, number one, you're recognizing the situation. You're responding to it. You're giving the perpetrators an opportunity to cut it out. And if they don't, the game's done. You know, so for me, it's, it's the right way. The players don't need to continue to play under the, that duress, under that circumstances. At the end of the day, they're, they're there as much to win for the organization as for the enjoyment of the fans. And if they cannot play freely and the fans enjoy themselves in a respectful manner, then what are they doing out there in the first place? So I think that it's a, it's a good start. You know, we'll see how it plays out, how successful it is. Obviously, I think it's going to be modified over time, maybe more aggressive, maybe maybe less aggressive. But the objective is to make people aware of it, have people stop doing it and uh, let the game play. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, I think I think it's a great start. You know, as, as you know, as you just said, um, I think it's a great start, and I'm I'm also wanting more, right? I, I'm wanting more um, because I feel like the the punishments, you know, so like I guess there's a difference between the process, right, and then the actual punishments, right? The the punishments for me is is what really um, bothers me because the punishments aren't aren't effective, right? And so. What we see with Juventus, you know, and I've said this before on, on on different on different podcasts, like when you see Juventus, they're getting point deductions, right, and putting them in jeopardy for Champions League play because of financial, you know, fair play and and all these things, right. But when there's a racist incident, there's no talk about point reduction. There's no talk about you know uh, uh, you know relegation and, and you know any of the, any of these possibilities, right. And so that's what I would love to see more, like more strict kind of punishment um, rather than. You know, playing in empty stadiums or banning that one particular fan, you know, for life or whatever. Like yeah. those are those are those, I guess, have its place. But I don't, I'm not sure if it's having the having the effect that that we would all want to see. When it comes down to players, I, I definitely like to see more strong repercussions against players. You know, I think it's no different. We we say that verbal abuse is just as strong, if not worse, than physical abuse. And if someone turns around and punches somebody in the face, they get a lot more than three games for that. Mm-hmm. So I think when it comes to, to these type of incidents, it should have just as strong as any punishment in the league. Whether that's six months, eight months, terminate the season, I think it needs to have a much more severe punishment for players. You know, if you did it, hold yourself accountable and take take the punishment. Absolutely. Stacey, do you want to add anything? No, I, I, no that's, that's actually the, you know... I, I do think things have gotten better with uh, by allowing the players to to put in and, and uh, allowing allies to be a part. But yeah, they're part of that, like you said, because uh, it happened in the MLS club recently with the player not, you know, nothing, nothing really happened, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's um, you know, each each case is different, but. Um... I definitely think there needs to be. I definitely think there needs to be a more strict kind of um, 
uh, punishment system uh, put in place. But okay, so let's let's transition, uh, I guess, from your playing careers into your coaching into your coaching careers. Um, so Stacy, uh, coaching uh, students on the high school level. Um, I know when I was in high school, like, you know, a lot of a lot of students were very kind of uh, active in this, you know, civil rights, social justice movements. Do you get some of that same vibes and same energy from your students that you coach? Um, are some are some of your players interested in these topics of, you know, racial equality of social justice? Um, and if so, how do you engage those? How, you know, how do you engage those players as as the coach? You know, I, I, I wish I could say yes, but the truth truth is that that's not the case. No, yeah, I would, yeah. I'd say I have, uh, you know, very few, and that might change in the next couple of years. Because uh, I'd say the most person most uh, that seems intrigued and maybe even struggling with her identity is is only an eighth rising eighth grader. So, uh, but but in terms of, um, you know, I tend to work with. I've, worked with small, relatively small private schools. And, um, you know, so the, 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 the most recent school that I'm in, I just don't feel that the, the players really are trying to have those conversations. Sure, sure. I feel, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that they don't have good hearts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, actually, the school that I was at before this, I did feel, you know, I, I, you're making me recall now, I actually did help him start an athlete, um, black student, you know, a, a black student union that a lot of athletes. So it kind of modeled it after the the one from uh, my high school. Yeah. And yeah. it was actually like ridiculously popular, um, <laughs> and to to the degree that it you know was kind of received with hostility by like the school uh, school um, was it the disciplinarian you know vice sure, principal. Sure, sure. You know, so we were actually getting some things, you know, like, hey, you're not allowed to meet one of the my co-sponsors classroom. Um, so, you know, we had the meetings there and suddenly kids weren't allowed to take lunch, you know, from this building to that building. So meanwhile, other school, other groups, you know, uh, Jewish, Jewish Student Alliance included, like they've been doing that like for forever so that was really interesting um you know i did i did try to come up with uh at the time i think the school had read the tanahisi coach book uh between the world and me so that was just an extra place where we talked about it um and then afterwards that was back when kaepernick was uh um you know really making headlines so yeah we did like lunch discussions each week so Actually, so when I felt like I had a, a bit of, um, I guess you could say, a, a group that was interested, uh, I did, you know, really go after it and combine with other faculty members. But yeah, right now, like uh, where I'm at, and I, I do, you know, I really enjoy the school. It doesn't say anything that's bad about the school, but you know, it's like it's a predominantly white institution. Like, there's, it's not being asked for, and there's, I would, I would, I would not feel right like asserting uh you know hey does anyone need this like sure, I, I know sure. they don't want it like just <laughs> stay in my soccer lane and, and enjoy you know in yeah. life and find somewhere else to make an impact so um, that's an, i mean that's an incredible story stacy i mean so so the players 
approached you to to start this to start this uh, uh, Black Student Union, or I mean, how did that how did that get off the ground? Yeah, it just came through conversation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. Mm-hmm. And and then um, some of the some wanted to wanted to do it, so it came with a petition. Okay. And you know, easily got the you know twice as many as was needed. And yeah, it was a, it was a pretty big, big group. You know, wow. at least at least fifty students. They had yeah. Uh, you know, it became you know multiracial. Like it was, it was, it was great. That's um, incredible. But That's yeah, incredible. It, it. But so the but the amount of um, resistance that uh, me and the other uh, sponsor met was was really interesting. Interesting, but I'm sure not not too surprising. Not shocking. Right. Disappointing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I hear you. Um, so, so Chris, what about you? I mean, you also coach youth players, um, but but more so on the club level, right? So, I mean, has have have any players um, brought up these type of discussions with you? And and if so, or if not, or well, I guess if so, have you you know, you know um, handled those discussions? And if not, why do you think that is the case? MLS Next is as engaged in trying to um, take this responsibility on as a league. So recently, every single club in the MLS has had to have a culture, two two culture coordinators who have basically been charged and responsible with educating the coaches and the players in terms of racism, discrimination, and harassment of what is, in, is not no longer accepted by the league. And it's really been good because the conversation is, and the way the training has been delivered has been able to engage kids and allow them to open up and have conversations about situations that may have occurred and how they may have felt in that situation. And that it's been done in a, in a group setting. So it's actually been surprising how open the kids have been to conversation. Um, they're definitely now more aware of certain situations. I think a lot of people were scared initially of the, of the reaction of the parents. But the kids have actually embraced it well because they're aware of the situation, they're aware of the conversation, they're aware of the words. They've just never been educated on how it could potentially be offensive to other people around them and never been made aware that, hey, the league isn't tolerating this. If you use these terms in a game, you're getting suspended for three games. So the league has actually taken on board and the clubs, um, as part of their membership, have had to administer this mandatory training. I mean, it's just a start. It's like one 90-minute session, but it's just a start and hopefully they can continue to build and grow it. So in the MLS Next Space, they're actually trying to be a little bit, I don't want to say proactive, reactive, but they're doing something, you know, yeah. something that hasn't necessarily been done before. Now, do you know if this, if this, um, if these culture coordinators exist on the MLS level or is it just MLS Next? Um, it's, it's different on the MLS level because... As a grown-up, the language you use maybe is a little bit different to how things are done in the in the in the youth space. At the end of the day, these the minors, the environment in the youth space is you know coaches are uh, almost an extension of educators, almost an extension of teachers. So the environment also needs to reflect a, a respect for educational environment where kids are learning life skills as well as learning soccer. Yeah. Um, and probably sometimes we know that the numbers coaching for soccer is not so great when it comes to elite soccer for black coaches so being a black coach I may be one of the, the few black leaders that these have contact with so I think it's important the interaction and the lessons that they learn of what's tolerable and what's not I don't let the kids use the m-word because number one I don't use it and I don't want them to use it in a situation where they could end up in, in a bad situation whether they're using it in jest or in a serious manner 
if they come into contact with me and, I, and it becomes cool to use or acceptable and now they go out into society thinking coach Chris allowed me to use it so it's acceptable and somebody else takes offense to it then I feel like I played a part in that situation and that problem that could, could, have, been, could have ended up in so yeah, in, yeah, yeah. No, of course. I mean, it's just you know, kind of, um, kind of solidifying your earlier point about about leadership, right? And the importance of leadership, um, especially when there aren't these, you know, um, these policies or these or these practices in place like culture coordinators. Um, it is the responsibility of the coach, right, and the and the leaders of the team to kind of take that take that role. Are they are they well equipped to do that? <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if they are, right? Um, I'm sure. I'm sure some of them are, of course. But um, I think it'll still be nice to kind of see trained professionals, right, in these in these roles. Um, so that's. I mean, that, yeah, that's fascinating about what MLS Next is doing. Uh, that's, that's very promising. Um, at least you know, at least for the youth, you know, at least for the youth level. The music, uh, the music yeah. does make it challenging, though, because the music that kids are listening to makes it extremely challenging to make uh imminent change in some of these kids it's really challenging yeah hopefully trying to make them aware of certain situations like hey you had to read the room each room each environment has a different etiquette that's it that's it it. yeah no i love that word etiquette i mean because i mean it's so true right each each room you step in you have to be able to adjust and comport yourself differently um in order to thrive right in order to thrive so um okay so um that was awesome. That was awesome. So, of course, you know, um, as we move forward um, throughout your careers, we end up in 2020 with, uh, of course, the George Floyd, uh, the George Floyd killing. Um, and since then, we've seen an outpouring of support from really all segments of society um, as it relates to, to racial equality. Um, and last episode, our last episode, we talked about uh, Jeremy Ibobasi, uh, one of the uh, stars of, of of MLS right now, uh, who's absolutely just just killing it um, with the goal scoring. Um, but we talked about how he's very cynical. Right? He's very cynical about, or he was very cynical about those, about that moment, about that post George Floyd moment, about the protest, about the sincerity of the protest. Um, as you know, as professionals, as coaches um, during that time, how did you all process that moment? Um, particularly right the, the killing of George Floyd but also the immediate aftermath um, following following that uh, Stacy uh, why don't you start and then, and then Chris will, will come to you I mean, uh, I, mean, I guess I don't, I don't know really how to answer that question how did I process it I processed it well um, you know uh, or, or um, you know George Floyd that was I'd say what was most helpful to processing it for me um, was actually the fact that we were um, in quarantine and I didn't have to be out in public. You know, like I kind of mentioned earlier, I'm more working in the predominantly white uh, uh, spaces. So I do think um, that it was, you know, again, it, it wasn't more the shock of it, uh, but I think it was more like, you know, this is happening again. You know, we'd had these pretty noteworthy um, cases uh, before that to where, you know, nothing's happening. So uh, so I think there's, there's that. Um, 
you know, and I think uh, oddly there was a little bit of, uh, you know, even though it's uh, uh, happiness that it's finally being, you know, that it's being recognized and, and put out there you know, to the degree where, again, it's, uh, it's again, a, a little bit of a outrage, um, the fact that it, it had been ignored for, for so long. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I think uh, had I had to be out in public, uh, having to be talking to uh, being a lot of people's, uh, you know, you know, black friend to yeah. kind of bounce this off of or put their uh, guilt uh, one way or the other. I think that would have driven me crazy. So, uh, or even more so. So. For sure. For sure. Yeah. That's a. Uh... That's, you know, yeah, I mean, that's a great point, right? The fact that quarantine almost provided a sense of protection, right, for, you know, for you. And I'm sure a lot of other black, black people felt the same way if their, if their phones weren't being blown up uh, by, their, by their white friends. Um, but, but, you know, Stacey, I remember last time we spoke, you, you, you had some reservations about, about the protests, right? Can you, can you say a little bit more about how you felt about the protests, um, whether or not you felt that they were genuine or not, or uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just you know, I don't I don't like to be. I like to let each be their own, uh, not judge. You know, so I do feel a little bit judgy saying it, but yeah, it's um, yeah, just uh, like I said, the the fact that it took uh more. It took that situation and it, it just seemed like a lot of people were in a position before that to comfortably say something if they were truly outraged. And, you know, was this representing kind of just more uh, uh, a change that some people, you know, might market off of differently? I don't know. Is the change real? So there's there was already kind of a cynicism. Is and, the change real? Yeah, I, 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 you know. I hate to admit that because I do like to you know, recognize what all the positive that has happened. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, as some people say, you got to stop and smell the roses. And, and that's, that's part that that's healthy. So, yeah, yeah. but yeah, yeah. I mean, I also think that cynicism, right, is, is also what? healthy at times too, right? I mean, at, to your point and, you know, thinking about Jeremy Abobasi, who, who wrote this beautiful um, article in uh, for Medium, uh, back in 2020, right, where he talks, he just talks about, he's like, you know, there's there's a cynic in me, right, and and you know, we've seen this before, right, and I'm afraid that after a few months, after a few years, we're going to be back in the same kind of position, um, and it seems like you kind of shared some of those, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some of that same cynicism. Chris, uh, what about you? How was your, how did you process that whole moment? Um, how did some of the players process it? Where you know, was it kind of a, you know, were there any discussions around that moment? Uh, just kind of talk us through, talk us through that. I think that that moment actually led to to where we are in 2023, where we actually have culture coordinator program, where the league actually has a, a vice president who's in charge of diversity and inclusion, and there's a team in the MLS office directly working on this. We have the MLS Advanced program that was launched in December. That's, that's now, I think, 12 out of the 14 candidates are now in positions in the MLS, and prior to that, 
they weren't and it was all for, predominantly for diverse candidates and it was the, the initiative was you know when people are hiring they're like well i don't know who to hire it was to get highly qualified candidates in front of the decision makers to present themselves to present their resumes to say like hey when you're hiring here's a list or you know a, a database of people who you can potentially choose from and it, choose, it turned out to be fruitful because a number number actually ended up in strong positions off the back of it but i think it was really what galvanized black players for change um at the time um they obviously took a really strong stance and used their power and collective to make a difference with the league and for us in the youth space it's like well the next generation of black players are in the youth academies right now and they're probably more impacted than you guys in the senior positions because they don't have the following that you have on twitter and they don't have the sponsorship sort of voice so when they're racially abused their leaders are telling them to brush it under the carpet and get on with it or they lose their opportunities to play whereas you guys have a huge platform so the two were then connected and there was actually a lot of um, strong conversations there was a racist incident that happened around the time where a black player was um, sent off for waving after being racially abused the referee sent him off for retaliation of waving and his organization told him that he needs to move on for it if his coach asks him about it to brush it under the carpet and don't answer any questions to anybody and it really impacted him as a as a player he felt isolated segregated from the group you know at the end of the season obviously he moved on but it was an opportunity now to engage the league and be like hey what are we doing in our space to prepare ourselves or to engage with the kids in conversations when these issues happen in society because we know it impacts them and we just operate as hey business is normal when we should be really using this as an opportunity to educate kids talk about this and, and improve our environments we're moving on for it so it really was the initiator that started some of these conversations and movements that we see um, post George Floyd 2023 now there's a number of things that have taken place that's maybe not moving us as fast as we would like but it's definitely allowing us to take small steps and get small wins along the way yeah um yeah that um you know it's it's it's, it's obviously um they obviously are that moment rather um produced positive things and it feels kind of weird to say that right this, the killing of somebody produced something something positive but right we saw we see how something we, we saw changes right after after that moment um you know and it's just you know just just hearing the stories the both of you are kind of you know um expressing it's just like wow like this is such a normal experience for so many black players um just playing the game that they want to play right on all levels of you know on, on all levels of the game they have to just keep experiencing different different incidents of racism whether it's from fans whether it's from other players whether it's from a lack of support from their own organization um it's just it's just incredibly unfortunate that all of this uh, continues to happen and we're still having these conversations right Okay, so uh, you know, final question. Thank you all again. You know, thank you both for you know joining me for you know for for being here on this podcast for really being vulnerable, opening up, and sharing some of these stories. Um, so, with the final question, you know, of course, part of the aftermath of of the George Floyd moment, um, you know, as Chris, you know, as Chris said, you know, you had the Black Players for Change uh, in the NWSL, you had the Black Women's Players Collective, um, but also you had, of course, the um, the creation of a of the federal holiday right of juneteenth becoming a federal holiday um and since then we've seen mls and other leagues throughout you know throughout the country uh, celebrate the holiday through different initiatives um so specifically mls uh, commissions uh, for the past couple of years they've commissioned an artist to make a juneteenth inspired jersey 
which is then auctioned off and the proceeds are donated to a local black organization. Um, what do you all think about what MLS is doing? Um, what would you like to uh, so would you like to see anything else or anything different? Kind of um, how are you all feeling about um, and not just MLS, but MLS and NWSL, the state of U.S. soccer in general? How, do, how are you all feeling about um, how they are approaching these issues of racial and social justice? Uh, Chris, you can start, and then uh, Stacy. I think it, you know, as I just mentioned, it's a situation where we have to, to take small wins as we go along. We see that future, future Nehru is now vice president of U.S. Soccer. That's something that we, we wouldn't have seen previously. I think if you look at MLS Next Pro, there's a number of, of black head coaches being given opportunities to lead from the front. So I think that there's a lot of small wins, and uh, my hope is that it's not just momentary. I hope it's something that's able to be sustained long term, and it becomes part of the DNA of the league and infrastructure, and not just something as you mentioned that is you know two or three years and then everything returns back to normal. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the league are. They have the personnel and the initiatives that are making change one step at a time. Of course, it's never going to be as, as quick or as rapid or as fast or as authoritarian as we as we wish. But I think we are making progress. And in comparison to some of the leagues that you referenced in Europe, we may actually be moving a little bit quicker than some of those guys in terms of doing something. I want to be cautiously optimistic. That's fair. That's fair. Cautiously optimistic. I like that. I like that. I like that. Uh, Stacy, what about you? Um, I guess if you're asking about the the jersey itself, um, you know that as an idea seems cool on the surface, but it also seems like a real minimum without knowing what the uh, other ones have gone for. You know how much money has been raised for these local organizations. I, I, I can't fully criticize, but my instincts are that. Uh, you know, do you have those numbers? I do not have those numbers. Um, I know. Uh, I mean, I have. I think I have some numbers for from in Miami, but not not throughout the league. No. Oh okay. Well, we're how did it go in Miami? Uh, I know last year the numbers I heard were around. Uh, a little less than ten thousand, or maybe maybe right around ten thousand. Um, so, I think they were try actually it could have been actually it could have been a lot less than ten. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, um, but no more than ten thousand for sure. And I know they were when I was talking to the front office like, a couple of days ago. They were saying how they were obviously trying to increase that, double that. Um, you know, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well. You know, I always have the evil on one shoulder on the other. So the angel's very, you know, appreciative of the fact that things have changed so much. Um, you know, and like we said before, though, you know, it's, it's kind of like racism doesn't just go away. It transforms itself. So with all these changes going on, it's kind of like uh, I, it, 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 it takes time to process really what is going on and how things are changing because I don't just believe that it's just oh my gosh I saw this George Floyd video now I see the light and I want my organizations to change and think like you know like a lot of people are jumping hoops and, and looking happy doing it but are things changing um, you know so again not to sound uh, <laughs> I'm, I really am an optimist <laughs> 
promise. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's. I think. I think a little bit of both is uh, is healthy, right? A little bit of optimism, but also a little bit of a little bit of cynicism as well. I think is uh, healthy, um, especially again, especially because it's not the it's not the first time, right? We've seen this over and over again. So the cynicism is justified, but also the optimism has to be justified because we are seeing changes, right? Um, but Stacy, I think you know the. I think let's end let's end this interview with with your words. Uh, you know, racism uh, never ends; it only transforms, right? And so um, we have to we have to continue to be diligent, um, and we have to continue to you know hold our leaders, right, and um, you know everyone involved accountable, so uh, these incidents cease to happen, right? Um, so you know, thank you both. This was a fascinating fascinating conversation. Uh, we really appreciate the, the both of you for coming back to the Dreaming of Freedom podcast. Um, and hopefully we can do it again soon. Hopefully we can do it again soon. Uh, so if there's anything else uh, or there's nothing else you all would like to say, is, is, is there anything, final words from Chris or Stacey? No, I think we covered no, it. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say I really enjoyed listening to Chris. And thank you for having me, Jermaine. No, of course, of course. Same, Stacey. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yes, love it, love it, love it. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy I got to uh, bring the both of you together. Um, you know, and hopefully, uh, again, hopefully we can continue this going down the line. Uh, so thank you all for joining us. And uh, that, that's it for the interview. Thank you again. <laughs>